0: I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah somewhat in the middle of your Old Testament. We're doing a study of what are called the post-exilic books of the Bible. What that means is the books of the Old Testament that were written after Judah had been carried into captivity and then around 538 or 9 B.C king Cyrus of Persia allowed the Jews to return to the land of Judah. And so there was this return and a number of books that were written during this period after they had been exiled in Babylon and now a remnant had returned to Jerusalem. Um, We've looked, for example, at Ezra, And then that led us into a study of Haggai and and Zechariah. Today we look at Nehemiah, and then we'll look next week at Malachi and be done with our study of these post-exilic books. Now I'm going to mention a name to you, a fellow who died, I believe, just last month at the age of 100, who at one time was regarded as the most powerful man on earth. Some of you will remember his name, but most of you, it may be a name that you wouldn't know, such as how quickly people fade from the stage of world power. The man's name was Henry Kissinger. Uh, Kissinger was the Secretary of State under President Nixon and Ford, and had actually been involved in a variety of very significant things on the world stage. For example, it was he who opened up the door in relations between the United States and China. It was he who developed the strategy by which the United States exited the Vietnam War. It was he who helped to resolve the great Yom Kippur war conflict between Israel and her Arab neighbors in 1973. Now Kissinger came from Germany so he had a rather thick German accent and though you don't know him if you're too young, uh, those of us who are old enough will remember him very well especially that thick German accent and I actually learned to imitate him. You wanna hear my Henry Kissinger impression? All right, all right, here we go. External encirclement plus internal demoralization, plus nuclear blackmail, equals piecemeal surrender. (laughs) Now you might ask, what in the world does this have to do with Nehemiah? And the answer is that Nehemiah served in the similar function to Henry Kissinger in the kingdom of Persia. The Bible says that he was a cupbearer. and of course that does mean that he carries the cups for the king around, but it also meant that he served as a sort of prime minister, a person of deep political influence. And so as we look at this book, we need to understand that Nehemiah was a man of great stature in the Persian kingdom, a person of deep influence, a Henry Kissinger, if you will. This will become important as we make our way through the book because there will be points at which people are going to be criticizing Nehemiah as trying to make personal gain for himself in this little outpost of Judea. And nothing could be further from the truth. There's nothing about Judah that would cause a person to go, well, if I wanna gain power, money, and influence, I'm gonna go there, I'm gonna leave Persia, the palaces of Persia, and go there. Nehemiah was in every way a tremendous servant of God. So, let's think about some things that set our context. Our timeline, 586, is when Judah, the kingdom of Judah is destroyed by the Babylonians. Around 538, this decree of Cyrus that allows about 50,000 people to return under Zerubbabel. And Ezra chapters 1 to 6 were written during that period of time. As the temple is rebuilt, there's some hiccups there, but it finally gets completed in 515 BC as a result of the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. And then... In this little in-between time where we're not even going to be covering it, uh, Esther becomes queen of Persia. Uh, You'll remember we did a whole series in the book of Esther a few years ago where we uh, still use, uh, many of us use that as a testimony. It just so happened, right? How God's sovereignty is at work there. And then we have Ezra leading a second group to Jerusalem with religious reforms that we saw in Ezra 7, uh, chapters 7 through 10. And then a little bit later then, about 445 B.C., so it's about 60 years after um, this decree to uh, return to the land, uh, actually more like 80 years, you have this coming of Nehemiah, in order to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So the temple has been rebuilt under Zerubbabel and Ezra and Joshua the high priest and through the ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. The temple's rebuilt, but the walls around Jerusalem, there's all kinds of holes in the walls. When we think about walls, we shouldn't think about like every part of the wall was knocked down. It means that there were big gaps. How many holes do you have to have in a wall for the wall to be meaningless as a defensive strategy? Well, only one. And so there's a whole bunch of them, and Nehemiah's job is to rebuild these walls to result in some protection for the city of Jerusalem. Uh, To set the context in terms of the kings of Persia, it was Cyrus the Great who had uh, given the decree for the Jews to be able to return, and then... Uh, Darius, there's a break in the kingly line, but he actually uh, renews the rebuilding of the temple in 520. Then there's Ezra's, or Esther's husband, and then following that, 465 to 424, Artaxerxes, where the work on the temple gets stopped again, but then it's renewed seven years later. And then in 445, about the middle of Artaxerxes' reign, Nehemiah comes to rebuild the walls. So let's dive into the book. We're going to start in chapter 1, and we're going to see that the beginning of everything that has to do with spiritual renewal begins with confession. We're going to see the importance of confession here. The problem is really bad. Nehemiah is in the palace in Persia, and there were people who had survived the exile and they give him this report, Nehemiah 1.3, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. It is this news that results in great emotional reaction on the part of Nehemiah. He mourns. And that is what drives him to prayer. This is a great principle for us, that when faced with things that are overwhelming to us, deeply emotionally overwhelming, the response is to go to the Lord in prayer. And look what it does. Confession has a proper respect of God. Oh, Lord, verse five, well, excuse me, go back to verse seven. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, oh, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ears be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel. Now there's a number of principles that are in this chapter, and by by the way, two great prayers of the Bible are found in Nehemiah. Chapter 1 and chapter 9, and both of those ought to be used by believers to help frame our confession of sin and our praying. I want to just go through this prayer in chapter 1 to give you a sense of some of the words that get used that help us in our own confession. It has to have a proper respect of God. And there's a Hebrew word that gets used all through this prayer that doesn't get translated into English. It's the word na. It means please, please. And so it says, verse 6, Please let your ear be attentive of your eyes open. Verse 8, please remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Verse O oh Lord, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Please grant him mercy in the sight of this man. This word please, a recognition that we're, we're not God, he's God, we're not And we are asking him. We say, please. Then the word hear. The word hear is all through this word. Does this, in this confession, does this mean that Nehemiah is doubtful about whether God hears his prayers? No. The issue is that when Nehemiah asks the Lord to hear, he's saying, hear with the intention of taking action. He's wanting God to act on his behalf. And so when we say the word hear, H-E-A-R, in this prayer, we should recognize that Nehemiah is calling on the Lord not just to listen to the words of his prayer, but to take the action of those words and, and then act himself. Then there are the, what I call the <clears throat> power words about God, Notice all these power words about God. Uh, Verse 5, the great and awesome God. Verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. A confession has the respect of God in saying, oh please, here with the goal of acting You are powerful and great. Confession also finds its hope in God. Sometimes when we confess our sins, we can sometimes have an emotional reaction of feeling hopeless. Our sins are weighty and heavy, and so we don't want to do a very deep dive into our sin. But confession, rightly done, finds its hope in God. Notice the love words throughout this prayer. Verse 5. Who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him. There's a relationship of love. Verse 8. Remember the word you commanded. If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you. But if you return, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I'll gather them and bring them to the place that you've chosen. He keeps his covenant of grace. Notice the personal relationship that Nehemiah has with God. By calling himself to God, he calls himself your servant. I'm your servant, chapter 1, verse 6, and chapter 1, verse 11. He calls Israel your servants, God. We are your servants. Again, a personal relationship. Verse 10, we are your people, Now, it's the mourning over the city of Jerusalem that motivates his prayer, but it's a prayer of confession that has a proper respect of God. It finds its hope in God, but it's also honest with God. It's straightforward. Sometimes our confessions are kind of lame, aren't they? We say, oh God, if I've done anything wrong, forgive me. Kind of a blank check kind of thing. Uh, It's not wrong for us to ask for forgiveness for things that we might not be aware that we've done that are sinful, but certainly it requires, I think true confession requires that we do the introspection that's necessary to identify our own sinful character, nature, and actions. And Nehemiah does this, look at verse 7, it says, we have acted... And the phrase that's used here is, very corruptly. Uh, Another way to translate that is, we have offended you offendingly. It's kind of an intensification. We've offended you offendingly. He's honest with God about the nature of sin. And so, Nehemiah, as he embarks upon this great work of building The walls of Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, begins with the importance of confession. Now in chapters 2 through 4, we see the rebuilding of the walls. Chapter 2 verses 1 to 8 talks about the goodwill that Nehemiah has with the king, King Artaxerxes, and King Artaxerxes actually sends Nehemiah. It says in verse 8, the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. And it actually began by the king noticing that Nehemiah wasn't himself. He says, you're not sick, but you don't look good. Why are you so sad? And that leads to a conversation that leads to the king granting Nehemiah this beautiful trip to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the walls. So, in chapter 2, verse 9, you have Nehemiah identifying the problem. He inspects the walls of Jerusalem. Now, there's some debate about uh, what the nature of the walls was, but I'll talk about that in a second. It looks like Nehemiah went around this way. Just He, he came from here, made his way as far as he could till he saw too big of a gap, and he came back this way, okay? So that's kind of his inspection of the walls of Jerusalem. And along the way in this inspection, he sees that things are tough, but there's also going to be some opponents. Isn't that terrible? That beyond the physical problem of rebuilding the walls... Nehemiah is going to have some people that are against him, against the very idea of rebuilding the walls. Look at verse 19 of chapter 2. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? You see, they're going to accuse Nehemiah of insurrection, of rebelling against King Artaxerxes. He who had been the cupbearer, the king, is now going to be accused of this rebellion by these guys. It may be helpful for you to know where these three guys came from. And I have a map. So this Tobiah is from the area of Ammon, which is across the Jordan River. You need to know that this map is east is up, okay? So in case you're kind of worried about that, east is up. And Tobiah is over on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, Sanballat is a Samaritan, somebody who's kind of a mixture uh, which kind of creates an early problem with Samaritans, right? Uh, that will be found in the New Testament as well. Uh, A man who's leading that group in opposition to the rebuilding of the walls. And then there's Geshem, the Arab, who is kind of taking control of all the trade routes that come from Arabia and through here and on their way to Egypt, uh, that's based in Gaza right here, which tells us that some problems never change, right? I mean, the issue of Gaza is always one that's uh, going to exist there. So these three fellows are oppo- opposing Nehemiah in the rebuilding. Now, <clears throat> there's some principles for the building for God found in chapter 3. These are some beautiful things. It's a list of people who built But if you do a little deep dive into it, you discover some principles for building for God that are real helpful. Um, Here's another map of the city. And the reason why I put this one up here is that it's uncertain because this is such a short period of time, there's not much archaeological remains of Nehemiah's rebuilding. And he's rebuilding on wall that has already been built. So, these he's reusing materials so to try to find archaeologically stuff some has been found but not very much so it's difficult to ascertain for example whether let's see there we go whether nehemiah rebuilt the walls that hezekiah had done or if he merely rebuilt around the city of david okay it's kind of hard for us to know there's some evidence to suggest that there was some building here because it says they built the broad wall and that's a reference to a part of the wall that Hezekiah built. That looks like this, it's about 30 feet wide. That's quite a bit of wall there and perhaps that's what's going on. In any event, um, this is a portion of the wall that that little circular thing is from the judean kings but the part that's off to our right here this little part right here the excavator an archaeologist israeli archaeologist by the name of elat mazar uh, she's the cousin of the of the archaeologist that taught me archaeology in jerusalem uh, elat mazar believes that this dates to the time of nehemiah um, Alat Mazar was an interesting woman because uh, she said that she did archeology span with a shovel in one hand and a Bible in the other. Isn't that kind of interesting for an Israeli archeologist? Um, So where this lady is standing here is the part of the wall that she thinks Nehemiah rebuilt and this part that's right here was existing already that was done by the Judean kings and that Nehemiah's team just rebuilt there. I want you to notice for a moment how, well, amateurish Nehemiah's wall looks. It doesn't look like much, right? And we'll discover why that is in just a second. But they're taking stones that had been thrown down by the Babylonians and reusing them to Rebuild this wall. Okay, and so it's not going to look that great. There's another reason it won't look that great it's because we got amateurs. We don't have builders. We don't have stonemasons building the wall. Let's look at verse chapter 3 and see these principles for rebuilding the wall. There were people who built where they cared. Okay, that's a good principle, right? And so the priests build just outside the temple. Verse 1, in verses 10, 23, and 28, there are people who are building the wall in front of their house. Well, that makes sense, right? You got a house, you got a wall, there's a gap there, you just build in front of your house, so they build where they care. Then there are people who build whether they are called to build or not. You'll see this in a negative fashion in verse 5. Next to them, the Kohites repaired, but notice, their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Isn't that a sad statement? These nobles just thought they were too big to stoop to throw one stone on top of another. But positively, I want you to notice verse 8, next to them, Uziel, the son of Herhiah, goldsmiths Repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. Now, I don't know much about goldsmiths or perfumers, but I know that their typical job was not grabbing great big blocks of stone and rebuilding a wall, right? So that's why this might look like some goldsmiths and perfumers did it, right? It's not their normal job to do. But they're doing it, whether they are called to do it or not. Uh, You'll see that verse 31, there were some more goldsmiths and merchants. You know, people that just aren't normally builders doing some building. Then there's building whether you are strong or weak. In verse 12, you have a fellow who repairs along with his daughters. And then in verse 13, you have a guy who repairs a gate and then repairs, it says, a 1,000 cubits of the wall. That's 500 yards of wall. That's a third of a mile nearly. Then there are people who build more than their share if they can. Several of the names are repeated in this chapter. So, for example, Merrimoth builds two sections of wall, one in verse 4 and one in verse 21. The men of Tekoa build one section in verse 5, another section in verse 27. Meshulam, another section in verse 4, and another in verse 30. Hananiah and Hanun, verses 8 and 13, and another section in verse 30. Benui in verses 18 and 24. This, this, and they built another section is something that gets repeated through this chapter. They build more than quote, unquote, their share. This is a good principle for us, right? Have you ever reasoned to yourself, you know what, I'm doing enough around this church. I'm doing enough. It's time for somebody else to do their share. You know? I hope the words of Nehemiah bring conviction to our hearts on that one. Um... And then nobody's building is more important than another's. These people are coming from all over the the province. And the priests are working alongside the merchants. It's not like one person's job is more important than another because you want to get the wall built. Chapter 4. Opposition to building is inevitable. Look at the outside opposition that comes. Verses 1 to 6 is belittling Uh, Sanballat was angry, greatly enraged, verse 1, and jeered at the Jews. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break down their stone wall. You see how they're belittling them? Notice the answer. The answer to belittling is first, prayer. Hear, O Lord, for we are despised. Turn their taunt back on their own heads. The second answer is renewed dedication. Verse 6, we built the wall. All the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. And They viewed the progress that had already been made, and that encouraged them. I love what happens in verses 7 and 8. There's more anger. Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, those are all those sections that I showed you on the map, heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward. The breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. What do you do when you face this kind of opposition? And the answer is first, prayer. Anytime we face a difficulty, our first response as God's people must always be to pray. Go to the Lord in prayer. And this is what happens in Nehemiah. He goes to prayer but notice he does something else. Verse 9, chapter 4, we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. So there was this twofold answer. One, asking God what only he could do, but then doing what you can do, which is to provide for some defense of the city. There's weariness and fear in verses 10 to 14. And the answer, when the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing, the answer is in verse 13, I stationed people by their clans, that is, as families, with their swords and spears and their bows. The answer is first, don't be alone. The second is verse 14, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. So don't be alone. Be reminded of God's character and of why you are building. Remember the Lord and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Verses 15 to 23. Describes the work and the courage doing the job that God has for them. Trusting that God will fight for them. That's in verse 20. But also have weapons ready to fight. So you've got verse 16. They Half of them worked on construction. Half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand. And held his weapon with the other. Uh, Verse 21. So we labored at the work, half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. So there is both work and courage. Um, one more picture of the city, you'll notice that there's a lot of repurposing of wall, right? And so this is what makes it archeologically difficult because you could take stones that were built in one section of a time and repurpose it to be used literally thousands of years later in a newer wall and trying to figure out the dating of all that can be somewhat tedious. Let's look at the um, dealing with problems, chapters five through seven. Nehemiah identifies a problem. There's a famine going on and there's high taxation. As a result, the people who don't have much food are having to mortgage their properties in order at high interest, in order to be able to pay their taxes, and they're actually losing their land because they're not able to keep making the payments on their on their fields and their vineyards and their houses. And so uh, being put into debt with these high interest rates. Uh, Nehemiah takes counsel and he, he talks to the, the, um, the community. And says, don't charge such high interest. Let's help each other. Let's abandon this exacting of interest. Return them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses. The percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Chapter 5, verse 11. And then, Nehemiah, this is quite a concept. <laughs> he... Um, He engages in a policy of lowering the burden of taxation. And all God's people said, lowers the burden of taxation so that people can actually make a living. And he himself did this out of his own generosity. Verse 15 of chapter 5, the former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, took from them their daily ration. Even their servants lorded over the people. The servants of the governor. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. Out of a recognition of who God is, he did not take what was rightfully his uh, from the grant given him by Artaxerxes. Instead, he did things at his own expense to care for other people. Verse 17 talks about the people who ate at his table. Verse 18, what was prepared was how much this, yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. What a guy, what a leader. I want you to think about that for a minute because if we go back, you look at that and you compare that to the splendor of Persia, and Nehemiah gets accused of coming there in order to build a kingdom for himself? Hello? He was in the most splendorous place, in the top position. And now he comes here to Jerusalem, and he's just giving and giving and lowering taxes and taking money out of his own pocket to bless people, and he's going to be accused of trying to build a kingdom for himself. The opposition from the neighbors, chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. We've already talked about Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem. There's a distortion of Nehemiah's motive. Look at verse 6 of chapter 6. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That's why you're building the wall. You've set up, verse 7, prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. We're going to tell the king on you. (laughs) And he sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. You're inventing them out of your own mind. They all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. And there are these prayers offered all through Nehemiah. Oh, now, God, strengthen my hands. Remember what I've done. Trickery to present a public image of fear. You know, they actually send a guy as a false prophet to Nehemiah at the end, in chapter 6, verses 10 to 14. Then they say, this prophet, this false prophet comes to Nehemiah and says, Hey, dude, they're going to kill you. Come with me into the temple and we'll keep you safe. Nehemiah smells out the plot what the plot was was to get Nehemiah to run into the temple first of all violating the rule of the priests alone being in the temple and secondly they would be able to say look here's your scaredy cat governor who's hiding for his own life Nehemiah smells it out and look at chapter 6 verse 11 should such a man as I run away What man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him, hired him to be a false prophet. Verse 14, once again, prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. And also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets, who wanted to make me afraid. In chapter 6 through 12, then, we have the recovery of community and of the scriptures. Chapter 7 is the recovery of the community. It almost looks exactly like Ezra chapter 2. It's a list of returned exiles beginning with the men of the people of Israel, along with priests, Levites, temple servants, son of Solomon's servants, and those at the end of unprovable descent, along with the totals. We did all that at the church picnic, if you remember, from Ezra chapter 2. In chapter 8, we not only have the recovery of the community, but the recovery of the scriptures. Um, Ezra reads from the law from early morning to midday. How would you like that? Um, Ezra returns. Now this is Ezra about 60 years later from when he had arrived in the land. And now he's he's an old man. And he's reading from the law. And look at verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood on a platform that they had made for the purpose. You ever wonder where pulpits come from? This is an early reference to a pulpit. And verses seven and, and Ezra, verse 5 of chapter 8, opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. Now, this isn't a command, but it is a good practice that we do from time to time here, don't we? That as we read the word of God, we stand out of a recognition that we're reading God's word. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands, I love that. They bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then there's a list in verse seven of chapter eight of all these guys and it says that they helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. Look at verse eight, Nehemiah 8.8, 8, because this is the, uh, a key text regarding the importance of the exposition of scripture. These guys read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, to read from the law clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is expositional preaching. They're expounding the scriptures. And notice the response to the word of God in verse 9. Nehemiah was the governor, as were the priest, the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn or weep. And the reason why was that the people were mourning and weeping because they heard the word and they understood it and they recognized there's a huge gap between where they're living and what the word of God says. But notice, they say, Nehemiah said, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And don't be grieved, don't be grieved by this. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, this day is holy, do not be grieved. And so the result is all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing, why? Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. One great response of the right exposition of Scripture is joy. The joy of understanding God's Word. And being able to say, I understand it, and I know where God wants me to go, and what He wants me to do as a result. This is the power of the exposition of Scripture. Chapter 9 is the recovery of corporate confession of sin. Verses one to four, for one fourth of the day they read the Bible. For another fourth of the day they confess their sins. Wouldn't that be amazing if we did that? One fourth of the day (laughs) reading the scripture, one fourth of the day confessing our sin. In verses five to eight they declare the attributes of God. Look at verse five. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. Verses nine to 15, they declare the works of God and salvation from sin. They declare the justice and forgiveness of God by rehearsing all that God had done for Israel and its history and then they declare in verses 32 to 38, the present state of things for the making of a covenant. Now therefore, verse 32, Nehemiah 9, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. In chapter 10, we then have a recovery of the covenant with God. And then, verse 11, the recovery of the special place of Jerusalem. And then chapter 12 is a list of the priests, and in chapter 12, verse 26, the one one that's listed is Ezra. So we've got a recovery of the community and of the Scriptures, of the corporate confession of sin, of the covenant with God, of the special place of Jerusalem. And lastly, we see the importance of pure worship. There's a procession, a procession of worship. Uh, in chapter 12, and they start down here at the south, and there's two choirs. One goes this way up to the temple, and the other one goes either this way, or if you believe in the maximalist view, you would go this way. But either way, there's two groups of people starting from the south, heading up to the north, to enter into the temple area to worship the Lord at Jerusalem. Look at chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, with singing, cymbals, harps, and lyres. You want to notice verse 31. I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the Dung Gate. And then verse 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall. Verse 40, so both choirs of those who gave thanks got, met together and stood in the house of God, I and half the officials with me. And verse 43, they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Wouldn't you like to have been there to hear that unbelievable rejoicing? The rejoicing of God's people over his restoration of their lives and their city. Well, we'll get a chance to hear something like that this afternoon. Chapter 13, then, is the elimination of compromise for the white-hot worship of God. You know, whenever we make compromises, it interferes with our worship. And in verses four to nine, one of those opponents, Tobiah, actually had a room on the temple complex. Nehemiah goes, well, we got to get him out of there. He's one of our key opponents. And then being able to pay the priests what they were due. They had not been paid. Verses 10 to 14, talk about that. And then verses 15 to 22, honoring the Sabbath, worshiping God on his terms, not on ours. The people had been placing materialism above worship. And then verses 23 to 30, getting rid of the live together arrangements that we saw in Ezra 9 and 10, compromise with the world, has always been the defeat of God's people. So this is the importance of pure worship. Where do we go with this? Well, I want to conclude by telling what Paul Harvey termed the rest of the story. So the temple uh, is active. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of the city. And things go along pretty much... uh, Uh, that way for about a hundred years until Alexander the Great comes and conquers that part of the world. He dies and leaves two of his generals, one in Mesopotamia and one in Egypt to control the region. They fight each other. This is all stuff that happens between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's a series of wars that are fought in that period of time between the Alexander's Uh, generals, and then there are people that come after them that are in Egypt and Mesopotamia. They fight over the land of Israel. And um, eventually there's a guy who's the leader of the region who does some horrible things. He actually sacrifices a pig on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. This is about 169 B.C., so it's about 400 years after Nehemiah. And the Jews rebel. They rebel against these Greek lords. And believe it or not, they gain their independence. For 100 years, Israel is an independent state in the land. From 169 to 63 BC. And the head of the Jewish leadership that rebelled was a guy named Judas Maccabeus. And some of you may know that this week was the holiday Hanukkah began. This is a story that happened from that time. First Maccabees records that this Judas, Maccabeus, uh, restores and rededicates this temple that Ezra and Haggai and Zechariah and Joshua the high priest had rebuilt in the days of Ezra. And it's rededicated and Second Maccabees records that there was a miracle. They didn't have any oil, and yet the lamp kept going for eight days. Uh, I'm not sure I buy that one, but uh, um, certainly there is a rededication that happens of the temple. In any event, what that leads to, because Judas Maccabeus was a priest, is it leads to an era in which the priests end up serving as kings so that when the Romans take over, these priests have a sense of importance way outside of their duties. And they become what's known as the Sanhedrin, the people who are the Jewish leadership of the day. And when Jesus comes to say, I'm the king, what are they going to say? No, we're not going to have you be king. Okay? Now think about this. If Nehemiah were somehow transported into that world, the world of Jesus, offering himself to the people as king, how do you think he would look at those priests? He would have to just shake his head in, in mourning. So, This morning, as we think about where does this lead us, we must always see how the Scriptures lead us to Christ and to the worship of Him because of what He's done in opening the door for us. But also a recognition that Jesus is, first, the King of the Jews and that there will be a restored kingdom to the Jews with Jesus as King. This morning as we go to prayer would you pray with me that we would confess Jesus as King. Heavenly Father take these words and multiply them in our hearts. Help us to recognize the importance of confession. Help us to see that there's principles of building for you that require courage on our part but that we ought to pray first and have courage second. Help us to deal with the problems of our lives, just like Nehemiah did. And Lord, we pray that there would be a deep recovery of the community of the church and a recovery of scriptures and of the expositional teaching of God's word, a recovery of the corporate confession of our sin, of our covenant with you and help us to recognize the importance of pure worship, eliminating any compromise for the white-hot worship of God. Now, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who's never put their faith in Jesus, that they would see that all this leads to Jesus Christ. It all leads to him coming and weeping over the city of Jerusalem because they refused to listen to him as king. And that all of us in our pride would respond that way unless your Holy Spirit awakens us. So do that work of spiritual awakening in folks' hearts that they may believe the gospel and trust in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. So I leave you This morning, I want to share two ways of application for you. First, this week, would you take the prayers of chapter 1 and chapter 9 of Nehemiah to form your own confession of sin? You don't have to take a quarter of the day every day to do it, like the people of Israel did, but take a moment to read through those confessions of sin and form your own confession of sin. Perhaps write it out. And then secondly, ask the Lord to help you become a pure worshiper. That prayer in Psalm 139, search me, O God, know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Would you stand for this blessing now from Nehemiah chapter 9? Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, O God, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven, the armies of heaven worship you. May we be such worshipers. Amen.